Hello everybody and welcome to another assembly of the Ghoul Guides Association. We are your Ghoul Guides. I am Lauren. And I'm Mary. And today we are going to be covering a topic that our beloved Dr. Mary Going is something of an expert on. It's one of my favourite things to talk about. Um, so yeah, we're talking about golems. We're going there and it's it's going to be fun. Golems. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to this one because, um, as some of you may know, I'm a big gamer. And golems are something that pop up quite often in video games. And I knew what a golem was in terms of a video game before mm-hmm. I knew what it actually was. And I remember when I learned about it for the first time, I was like, ooh. Yeah. Icky about this now. We're going to be focusing, I guess, more on the kind of myths and origins. Um, but yeah, like if you have any examples when we get to like contemporary depictions, then mm-hmm. yeah, because I'm not as big a gamer as you. Slash, <laughs> I'm not a gamer at all. So yeah, I I will be relying on you for <laughs> that kind of input. <laughs> cool. Don't worry. I got you. I got you. Mm. So before we jump in, how you doing, friend? Yeah, I'm doing good. Um. As you know, because you are one of the contributors, um, I guess we haven't really formally announced it, but me and the amazing Dr. Kathleen Hudson have got the contracts through and confirmation that our edited collection on religious horror and the eco-gothic is going ahead. So yay us and yay yay to everyone who is um, contributing to that. Yay! Which includes your your lovely self. Yep. (laughs) it includes me I sent my contributor (laughs) agreement back yesterday yeah I'm excited for that because you have let me write about Margaret Atwood which is a writer that I love and kind of specialize in because I've taught her a lot but I never you know I'm mostly an 18th early 19th century scholar I don't really get to write about Atwood because when I do do modern stuff it's you know soldiers and war and stuff Mm -hmm. so I'm really excited to to get a chance to talk about eco-gothic and horror and religion in the Mad Adam series. We're going to be going back to the Oryx and Crake, which is one of my favourite books. So it gave me an excuse to reread it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Yes. And if that sounds interesting to you, then, you know, just watch this space. We'll have more news um, about that. But we, yeah, we we signed the the contracts um, quite recently. And uh, yeah, it's just really exciting. I'm really excited about it because all of the contributions all of the chapters are just great. I can't wait to see everybody else's contributions. Mm, yeah. But how are you, friend? I'm okay. I got the reader review back this week for my monograph. So in the world of academic publishing, you're not allowed to just publish something. No. Unless you're Jordan Peterson, which is why he doesn't count. But you're not allowed to just publish something. When you when you write something, another academic who shares a similar specialism or knowledge has to like read it through and they say, oh, you know, you should do more on this or you should look into this or you should, uh, you know, look into this more. Sometimes it's quite a scary process because, you know, we are millennials and we're all scared of criticism. But it's also, you know, it's quite a positive process. And this is my first monograph. So I'm I'm quite excited in a weird way to like learn from this. And also because it means my book is closer to being published. So that is also exciting. So look at look at us being professional <laughs> academics. It's almost like we have PhDs that we worked really hard for for like eight years <laughs> it, yeah it can seem a bit of like a weird process and a long process outside of academia but I know I'm very excited to see your book thanks 
in print and, and stuff. So in book it's, book form. Yeah, in book book form. So <laughs> it's very exciting. And yeah, well done, well done. Thank you, thank you. Previously, when I have got my, anytime I've gotten read a report or anything like that, or just like even back on the PhD when I would get comments, I would always be like, oh, I'm the worst. I'm stupid. Why am I doing this? And then you have to like calm down and remember that academic constructive criticism exists for a reason. And as long as they're not the fabled reviewer too, it's usually for the best. But yeah, this was like the first time, maybe because I was in a coffee shop when I read it. <laughs> so we couldn't just have a you know complete breakdown. But fortunately, they framed it very nicely. It was very much a compliment sandwich, you know, where it's like, this is this could make a great contribution. Um, you need to change all these things. And why is your editing so bad? But I really think this has good potential. <laughs> like thank you so yeah that's that's good um, you know pandemic can't keep us down we're clawing our way back up into uh being actual academics with podcast about <laughs> thoroughly non-academic <laughs> thoughts that we have they're semi-academic yeah you know it's 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 a good mix we're informed by our academic learnings but then we make our own personal opinions on things like this person's a fuckboy. <laughs> that makes me feel icky. You know, we're full of really good um, academic opinions, which, you know, we will see as we come to, to today's topic. Kick us off, friend. Golems. Yes, golems. So we are we are filming this episode just before Easter. Um, it will probably air just after Easter. Um, but just in general, you know, it, it's spring, mm-hmm. you know, the days are getting longer. There's new like baby animals. I went to a farm recently and saw some new baby goats. Oh, baby animals. Spring is in the air and new life is around. And I happenstance didn't plan it this way, but let's have an episode all about creation and creating things and golems. I told you, you should have been like, this was 100% planned. <laughs> <laughs> This was 100% planned. Um, First of all, Lauren, I thought I'd start. You mentioned that you Mm -hmm. have come across golems in the wild. So what is a golem to you? Okay, so this is very much coming from a, like, Final Fantasy Dungeons & Dragons perspective. So a golem is a construct, usually made of stone, Sometimes, though, in video games of, like, metal and stuff. But it's, like, a construct that has usually, like, a control rod or some kind of remote. And someone creates it as, like, a soldier or a worker. And it doesn't have autonomy. That's really interesting. I'm very fascinated by the, the, the materials that you've you've just mentioned. Um, because, yeah, so, so basically, TLDR, golems are animated human shaped beings they're usually made of clay or mud ah. so i think it's interesting that that um in in the kind of gamer final fantasy-esque uh, creations that they're, they're more kind of metal and stone and, and 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 hard kinds of things where i guess it's it's less easily deconstructed yeah that makes sense i mean one of the biggest and this is something I knew what golems were when I played this is more recent game, but the Dragon Age series, which came out, I think, 2010, dwarves make golems, and obviously dwarves are stone craftsmen, and mm, they, yeah, I, yeah. I won't actually, I mean, I'm like, I won't spoil it, it's like a 12-year-old game. <laughs> Maybe I will spoil it. Spoiler alert for Dragon Age Origins, um, you find out in that 
game <laughs> that the golems were originally dwarves who sacrificed their souls or their beings to power these golems so technically they do have autonomy but they do also have control rods and there's a whole like narrative there about ethics and stuff Mm. but yeah in my head when I think of a golem I think of a stone construct yeah which which is really interesting the different materials um as we'll get to hopefully um also I just want to say kudos on your pronunciation because I think a lot of people especially since like Lord of the Rings um mispronounce the word and you know you you might think oh but isn't it golem 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 (laughs) and no 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 that is if you're saying golem you're talking about a little hobbit creature who you know lives in the woods in a cave cave. um golems yeah golems are something very different so the earliest stories of golems are actually found in the talmud which are kind of like a series of writings um in in judaism and do you know who, you know, what the kind of earliest stories, like who are they about? Can can you guess? In the Talmud, mm-hmm. I always think of it as being like Jewish mysticism, but I honestly don't know if I've got that right. So the earliest stories are about Adam. Oh, like the Adam of Adam and Eve. The Adam, who, who you may be familiar with from his group, Adam and Eve. <laughs> baby, baby back ribs, Adam. <laughs> Yeah, so we are going like all the way back to the beginning. So again, you know, this golems are all about creation. Mm -hmm. And um, in talking about these kinds of creation myths, obviously the myth of Adam and the creation of humans is a kind of parallel story. So Adam is figuratively or literally, depending on your belief system, known as the first human. And sometimes Adam collectively refers to humankind. Um, Mm -hmm. So the first human or just humankinds in general. And God in these stories, so in in the Talmud and also in Genesis, shapes Adam out of mud, clay, or Mm -hmm. all the dust of the earth. And then what God does is God breathes life into this creation. So you have the kind of the physical forming of your, you know, of this creation. And then the extra step that God does, which is, you know, breathing life and autonomy into this being. Um, And in the Talmud, it basically describes Adam being kneaded into a shapeless husk. (laughs) So that idea of, you know, it's quite Mm -hmm. hands-on and the the malleability of of the materials. Um, And yeah, golems are very similar. So you have that kind of story of of Adam and, and humans being formed in that way. And Golems are also kind of are typically created by individuals who are close to the divine. So God isn't going around creating golems. But if you are close to God, um, so think, for example, rabbis, if you are a rabbi, yeah, yeah, you might be able to also have something close to that ability um, where you can create a being that has some semblance of life. And in a, in a similar way that humans, when when humans die, you, you know that kind of that funeral saying, you know, from <laughs> dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Humans return back to the form. Yeah. Um, I just need to point out, I'm yeah. not laughing at funerals and that. It's just that once I went to a funeral, very very jet lagged. I think you know the story. It was when we came back from Mexico, and when the priest said ashes to ashes, dust to dust, my brain gave me like funk to funky. <laughs> um, and I just 
uncontrollably started laughing and it was not an appropriate response to the situation so I'm not I'm not making light of you know death and dust yeah, to dust yeah. it's just brought up a um a memory of a time when I was socially inappropriate <laughs> yeah well I guess in not that kind of way but in in the in the same way that you know humans when we die are I said to return back to those the, the materials that we yeah, were we go back made to the from earth, so to speak yeah golems are golems are the same um but of course golems are, are not fully human so mm-hmm. god can give life to adam but rabbis can't grant their creations like a fully human existence so there are similarities in that you know created from mud or dust or, or the earth and then at the end in in death or, or however you want to figure that there is this kind of return to the materials that you were made with, but there is a difference in humans and that they have a level of autonomy that, that golems don't have or a level level of kind of existence and mm-hmm. independence and functioning. The free will paradox. Yes, exactly. Which is why the kind of rods that you, that you said were also really interesting because that, that idea that they're not fully in control and there is something that is controlling them or, or guiding them. Mm-hmm. And to kind of show this, often golems have some kind of disability. And the, the most common one is that they often can't speak. Yes. So I think language is often kind of considered to be a signifier of human, you know, humanity in whatever form it is. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. The ability to communicate and the, the ability to speak or to, to engage in language, whether that's written mm-hmm. or... Well, yeah, because that's the whole thing in Frankenstein, isn't it? Like the monster can read, the monster can speak, and that implies mm-hmm. a tension between Victor's perception of monstrousness yeah. and the creature's self-perception of itself as an autonomous being. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned Frankenstein. We'll be getting to, <laughs> we'll be getting to Frankenstein um, soon. But yeah, so that is basically the kind of the the origins of what a golem is. And there are all these okay. kinds of stories in the Talmud, some of them describing Adam, but some of them describing um, rabbis trying to create life. But following from these kind of early Talmudic accounts, we then get Kabbalah and um, Kabbalistic texts. Okay, so... This is where we also stop and I say to you, Lauren, what is Kabbalah? <laughs> um, it's a trend where all of these very skinny white celebrities wore red <laughs> twisted bracelets and did yoga. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> I know yeah. that, I just need to point out that I do know that's not what it is. No, I know. Listeners, please, please be reassured. But it was too good of a uh, of a post-millennial joke not to make it. But this is exactly why I wanted to ask you um, mm-hmm. this question, because I think you are interested in this kind of recent tradition of Kabbalah. But it's very, very, very different to what Kabbalah actually is. Yes. It's so different that I, I you know... This kind of movement has basically appropriated the name and appropriated some aspects of Kabbalah and they've turned it into something else, which is not Kabbalah. Mm -hmm. But essentially, Kabbalah is a branch of Jewish mysticism and it emerged in the 12th century. And yeah, like you say, it's more recently been appropriated into Western esoterics and also cults. 
So. Yes, that's, that's, I mean, you know, as everybody's probably like, why is Lauren so interested in this? It's because mm. it, as it's been appropriated by Western esotericism, has become extremely culty. It's become very wrapped up in mm. the wellness cult. It's been yeah. associated with, you know, actual cult movements. But yeah, one of the things I find really fascinating is how particularly white western mysticism Mm -hmm. appropriates yeah from the rest of the world and then just erases all the bits that they're not interested in yeah and I want to make it very very clear that we are not talking about that here we are talking about Jewish mysticism this is not Gwyneth and her jade eggs this is genuine yeah (laughs) yeah what 900 year old tradition yeah so Jewish Kabbalah is meant to explain the relationship between the eternal, infinite creator, Mm -hmm. God, and God's creation. So the universe, but also humans, and the act of creation itself. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, in the in, you know, in Judaism, there is a belief in God and, and the creator. So it's what is humans relationship with that and and how how do we fit in and how does the universe and also the act of creation kind of fit with that um and one of the earliest and most important Kabbalistic texts is the Sefer Yetzirah which is also known as the book of creation or the book of formation Mm -hmm. so it's it's really important and I think also helps to popularize the notion that you know, of mysticism and occultism yeah. that has kind of led into some of the <laughs> Western <laughs> cult stuff. Which I guess, did you say this is 12th century? Um, yeah. So that that's when Kabbalah kind of emerges. I can't remember exactly when the Sefer Yetzirah kind of... So that's very much also in line with, you know, there's a lot of mysticism in, uh, not to generalise, but like... Mm, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Catholic mysticism coming out at this time. There's a lot of Islamic mysticism, like, you know, this is a period where the Abrahamic religions are starting to kind of look inwards, starting to analyze their own, you know, law, and you're almost getting like a, almost like a rebranding and resurgence, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's why in Judaism, especially, you have these these specific books, um, and and the Zohar is also another kind of important. Talmudic text that's also kind mm-hmm. of seen as a Kabbalistic text in in some context but yeah you have a lot of this kind of conversation and debate that is happening within religious communities and also kind of responding to other religious communities as well and what's happening um, but you have especially in Judaism this idea of, of a dialogue and a conversation and the Talmud is filled with passages of of rabbis talking to each other Mm -hmm. and then responding to what's what's come before and different people kind of adding in their own kind of perspective and it's it's not a kind of this is replacing what's come before but this is just building this kind of big conversation and theologically there were all these debates about as there still are today but you know about existence about what it means to be human and it, it kind of ebbed and flowed into this kind of mysticism kind of branch. Yep. So this book, the Sefer Yetzirah, or the Book of Creation, has been described as being basically a recipe book for how to make a golem. Love that. And in it, there are supposedly clues 
so it's not it's not an easy you know you need two eggs and this much flour (laughs) so it is kind of more you know difficult to decipher than that but it's Mm -hmm. basically a kind of it has clues for how you can make this okay kind of like the alchemy books at the time where Mm, yeah there's like a rose a baby in a bottle an upside down something and that's technically an alchemical equation but you have to understand the laws and the symbols and the history to be able like you can't just look at it and be like oh yes yeah I can use this to make an alchemical creation a soul you have to be trained and an expert yeah 100% so so basically there's this idea and and it it reflects the kind of traditional idea of Kabbalah um and and Kabbalistic wisdom that there's something mysterious that needs to be deciphered and decoded. Mm-hmm. So it can't be done by just anyone. And it's secrets. Yes, they're hidden, but they can be found by those willing to put the work in. And yes, alchemy also kind of developed alongside the development of Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. And alchemy or Rosicrucianism yeah. is, it, it kind of came out of um, Christianity itself. Um, but it's this idea, this kind of pursuit of the secrets of life. Yeah. Not just creation, but one of the one of the kind of um, alchemical pursuits is longevity or immortality. So you can think of the philosopher's stone, and it's a yeah. really good example of, of of the kind of that alchemy thing, where part of it is I want I want wealth, I want to be rich, I want to be able to transmute metals into gold. But another side of that is I want immortality, I want to be able to live forever, and these kinds of debates. And conversations and explorations were happening at the same time. What you have is in both kinds of traditions, this idea that you need a lot of learning, not just anyone can walk in. There's a lot of learning that you have to do. There's all these books that you have to understand. And, you know, it's whether it's a kind of pseudo chemical equation sort of thing that you need to do or, or something more esoteric in terms of rituals and, and religion mm-hmm. or, or a melding of the two. It's, something that can be achieved but it's very very secret yeah and hidden it's like the beginning of the idea that oh science is possible but science must be part of religion because mm. you know there's there's always been atheism but it's that kind of blending I guess yeah. isn't it on both sides of the idea of science and experimentation you know if that it exists it must be inherently divine like mm-hmm. if this is possible it must be divine yeah and Rosicrucianism starts with the idea that these secrets can only be unlocked through God. So it, it kind of, it, it has to some extent lost that a little bit, but that is re- that is really key. And, and again, with Kabbalah, it's the idea that you can only unlock these secrets through God, through a closeness to the divine. So even, it's not just a case of like, getting the the recipe or the ingredients together and saying the words and doing the ritual you also need especially within um, Kabbalah you need that kind of religious underpinning and and that relationship and closeness with the divine so again not just anyone can do this like and and I I would say probably someone who is a rabbi is probably the only person that, that can do this I do want to put out a disclaimer though that of course it's not as simple as that you know, um, unless I've missed... You can't just, like, stick the God battery into your pile of clay and be like, boom! <laughs> no, no. And, you know, unless I've missed, like, all these golems walking around, which, you know, I think... 
nothing's hard to miss. The, the Sefer Yetzirah is not actually a recipe book for creating golems. That is in part a kind of reading between the lines or uh, just a kind of urban legend kind of thing. Yeah. But there wasn't, that has been around since it was published, but it's not actually, you can't read the Sefer Yetzirah and then go and make a golem. So I just want to... <laughs> it's not the anarchist cookbook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um but that doesn't mean that there aren't loads of stories about rabbis and Jewish people mm-hmm. seeking out this path and, and hoping to to make golems. So yeah, if you are a rabbi um, and you want to unlock the mysteries of Kabbalah and the mysteries of, of creation, mm-hmm. you have to study this text um, and decode it and, and, and kind of reveal the divine ingredients. So the original act of creation was performed by God, as, as I've said. Of course. Um, and so it follows that, you know, the act of creating a golem can only be achieved through something that, that echoes that. Um, so again, you need to have that, that close relationship with the divine. You've got to have the God battery. Yeah, and you've got to have faith. <laughs> um, we all know what's up, we all just started singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> One of the early stories of golems in Jewish mysticism relates to the rabbi Rava, mm-hmm. who was alive between 280 and 352 Common Era. What a time to be alive! <laughs> oh yeah, and and this is obviously way before the Sefer Yetzirah. So yeah. so you can see that this book kind of codifies it, but there are stories earlier and. This is one of the most cited rabbis in the Talmud. Okay. So again, you have this idea of, you know, the Talmud and Jewish mysticism are um, not always one and the same, but there is a lot of Jewish mysticism um, and demonology in the (laughs) Talmud itself. Um, So Rava apparently got into mysticism in secret. And once he actually created a golem and then sent it to another fellow rabbi. So you know, it's this kind of, it's not a fully fleshed out story, but he's basically, yo, <laughs> look at what I did. <laughs> it is thing. Yeah, look at, look at what I've done. It's plausible though, because if mm. I created not sentient, but you know, life essentially, yeah. the first thing I would think to do is to send it to you and be like, oh my God, look at what I did. <laughs> yeah. You'd want to, you'd want to show off your accomplishments to your nearest and dearest. Mm, and, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. But probably the most well-known story um, actually goes back to the Middle Ages. And what I am specifically talking about here is traditions and stories that are born out of Poland, Germany and Prague. Mm -hmm. And these are tied to the study of the Sefer Yetzirah, you know, creating the idea that to activate a golem made of clay, you need to perform a ritual that involves certain elements. So in these stories, we kind of get more of an idea of what some of the potential ingredients could be. So one of the key elements is the secret name of God and the 72 letters that combine to make the name of God, which is also known as a a kind of Shem. 72 letters? Yes. So. Wow. Yeah. So you might have noticed that sometimes in Jewish writing, um, you don't always write out the word God or the word Yahweh in full. So you might have seen in writing G... G asterisk D, or it's in capital letters Y H Y um, Y H W H as yes. opposed to writing Yahweh. Um, and in in spoken language, God is often um, replaced with the word Adonai. So um, for for a lot of Jewish people, 
even saying God is is too far, so you replace it with with Adonai, um, because the the name God and God has many names, including Yahweh, and it's so sacred and it's so transcendent for humans to speak. So it's almost forbidden. You know, you don't say this because yeah. it's so sacred. Which also means that in Kabbalah, the name of God is incredibly powerful. That makes sense. Yeah. So in some versions of the legends, you would write the Shem. So that's the name of God or a letter of God's name. Um, And you write this on a piece of paper and insert it into the golem's mouth. Mm -hmm. You also get other versions where rather than writing it on a bit of paper, you would write it on the golem's forehead. So depending on the version, in order to activate or deactivate the golem, you have to kind of then change either the letters that you've written on, on the golem's forehead or you need to take out the scroll and do some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, for example, often the the word that is used is emet, which means truth in Hebrew. So that's E-M-E-T, emet. So you could write that on the forehead or you could write that on a scroll. And in order to, tr- to kind of deactivate your golem, you would scrub out the E. So you would just have M-E-T, which in Hebrew means death. So you have emet or met, and then, you know, on the forehead or on the scroll. There is obviously more to this than just <laughs> writing it and the name. Um, so yeah, if anyone's listening, don't get out, don't get any ideas. You can't just make a clay figure and then write emet on his forehead. Um, that's not going to work. In its but, <laughs> but in terms of like <laughs> the story of golems, this is, this is a really key trope. And you often find this, you either find, you know, a, a name carved in the forehead or a, or a piece of scroll that that can then easily be activated or deactivated. That must be then, like, because a lot of golems in, like, fantasy and video games have a command word, mm, yeah. and you have to speak the word to bring yeah. them to life and then speak a different word to shut them down. So that's obviously, like, a sort of bastardised appropriation of the golem story into mm. a fantasy setting. Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. And I think that... It's obviously not the only thing there, but I think that translates quite well into stories where you have this this one thing. And, and it's exactly like you said at the start, it's about being controlled and, you know, does the mm-hmm. golem have autonomy um, or independence? And oh, golem. Yeah, right? Okay, so the most famous legend is the legend of Rabbi Judah Lowe of Prague. And this features Rabbi Judah Lowe, who's also known as the Maharal. So in the 16th century, Rabbi Lowe created a golem that he called Joseph. And he wanted to do this because he basically in Prague, there are a lot of pogroms and anti-Semitic violence and prejudice. So he wanted to create the golem to protect his community. I think this is a really important kind of trope of contemporary golem stories in that the golem is often created as a protector and as a big huge being who who can then defend Jews from violence and persecution Mm -hmm. what he would often do is obviously the sabbath is really important in Judaism and what you're meant to do on the sabbath is it's a rest day so there's no work Mm -hmm. so he would deactivate the golem on the sabbath to you know because obviously the golem is powered by god powered by the divine so you need to respect that you need to show God respect and love and one way to do that is to make sure that you are resting and your golem is resting so Mm -hmm. 
put your feet up, have a little rest. Recharge the God battery. (laughs) Recharge the God battery. Exactly. Obviously, in lots of stories, there is a a kind of violent ending. And in, in a lot of these stories, one day where Rabbi Lowe forgets to do this. Mm-hmm. And because of that, so there's lots of different versions of this legend. But in, in some, the golem turns monstrous, turns on the Jewish community, and there's there's a, a lot of violence and bloodshed. Mm-hmm. In others, the golem maybe falls in love. And in others, the, the rabbi is just kind of afraid that the golem will turn monstrous. But what always happens is in the end is the golem is deactivated because of this kind of sense of fear that either the golem has done something bad and violent or that they will go and do something bad and violent. Yeah. So yeah, you have this kind of duality where the golem is both a protector, but also a kind of monster. And I, I think that is really interesting that, you know, you were like, oh, poor golem. Because yeah, I think I think this is where we can also start to think, you know, does the golem have autonomy and, and, and should the golem yeah. have some kind of empathy? Should we should we feel for the golem it's kind of like if a creature is made by divine power Mm. then and divinity gives life even though it's man-made it's still god's an extension of god's power and it's like well if god didn't want it's that thing of like well if god didn't want to put life into this creature it just wouldn't have worked so you do have that added ethical complexity Mm. of how does this work you know is that a is it fair to to deactivate this golem and then never bring it back again is it fair to create it in the first place uh you know all of I think there's also an ethical question in that if this creation is solely made for violence and to kill Mm -hmm. is that ethical in terms of you know is the golem just a killing machine or, or is the golem a, a living being? Mm-hmm. In which case, yeah. should this being's existence be purely for violence and death? See, I wasn't going to mention that because I didn't want to insert my specialism into your <laughs> episode and be like, so. But that's something, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that I deal with a lot, like in my research, that you have this idea of like the soldier of God and the mm-hmm. rightful soldier yeah. and Christian knight and you know that's all tied up in nation and the idea that this is justified violence but still violence you're still training and creating and shaping men and it is men you know not to say that only men ever fought but these bigger ideologies are all very you know masculine patriarchal but that that was the thing that you know, every war, every you know major campaign, there would be this anxiety of it's still violence. They still have been out in the battlefield. They have been shaped and made to kill people, not because they did a singular thing, but because they happened to fight for the other side. And that's something that I think, particularly as we get into like the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, it's interesting that mm. this story comes. What do you say, sixteenth century? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that this story comes around that time because I think that's when we start to get these concerns about Mm. we're coming out of the feudal period and we're starting to think about violence for the sake of violence and the fact that there is no real difference between justified and unjustified violence, which the Gothic, I think in its early genesis, is very obsessed with. Absolutely. And I think that's actually a nice way into what I want to talk about next. Um, So... 
this kind of specific myth of of Rabbi Judah Lowe, and there are there are other stories, but I think this is the most kind of prevalent and well known. It does, yeah, it, it goes one. back to the 16th century, um, and and it's in kind of you know Eastern Eastern Europe. But when you get to especially the 19th century, it starts moving westward, and there's lots of translations, and yep. I mean both in the kind of just translating a story, you know, moving and reimagining the story from Eastern Europe into Western Europe, but also the the actual language translation of of these stories into yes. into German, but also English. The active translation, and you get this. I think the Brothers Grimm are are quite important in making this story known to Western Europe. And obviously, you know, we've mentioned it before, but yeah. Frankenstein is also a key kind of Gothic text that emerges at the start of the 19th century and yeah. there are a lot of parallels between these these kinds of stories in that you have a man creator figure so whether it's Rabbi Judah Lowe or whether it's Victor Frankenstein who wants to replicate the act of creating life in in the golem story Rabbi Judah Lowe creates a golem and in in Frankenstein Victor Frankenstein creates the creature mm -hmm. And they're both described as being quite very big, it's so big that the size alone is kind of monstrous. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're also tied to these stories are aspects of ethical aspects about ethical issues about creation and, and autonomy and, and life, but also about destruction and violence. And do we view these creatures as, as monsters? So I just want to quickly mention an article um, an article by Stephen Berman, which came out in 2015. It's called The Role of the Golem in the Making of Frankenstein. So he argues that Mary Shelley may have discovered the golem through the Brothers Grimm. So did the Brothers Grimm, did the Brothers Grimm include a golem story in their fairy tales then? Yes. So they retell the story of how the golem came to Prague in an 1808 publication. Interesting. It's kind of coming from the east of Europe into Western Europe. And this may, em emphasis on may, have <laughs> been the source of inspiration for Shelley's Frankenstein. I think this argument is quite speculative. I think it's really good. It's a really good article. And, it's, and I think it's really interesting to consider these two texts together. I don't know that we can say this for sure. If anyone does know, if you have any you know, evidence that Mary Shelley read one of these texts or, or was aware of this, I think that that would be more concrete. But ultimately, I think that we can only speculate and say, yeah, maybe she was aware or, or maybe someone that she knew was aware. I think that it is odd that you have these stories that are so similar coming about. And this is the time, like the early 19th century is the time where these kinds of stories of Rabbi Judah Lowe were coming mm -hmm. into Western Europe and, and then into kind of English language. Yeah, because we know she was reading a lot of, you know, through her mm -hmm. father and through Percy and through their social circle. You know, these are very like up to date people. They were, you know, they were keeping up with the, the latest developments. And at this point in time, people are very obsessed with what would later become vivisection. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of moral panic around um dissection because if yeah. the body comes you know if we come back in the revelation uh the revelation then you know what if we've dissected somebody what if we've done this and I know that informed a lot of Frankenstein but I do think it's really interesting that I hadn't realized that that the golem story was 
was kind of lumped in with the fairy tale because I feel like that makes a lot more sense of why there's been this massive appropriation of the golem. I mean, the Brothers Grimm do also... The Brothers Grimm, yeah, they're well known for their fairy tales. They also retell yeah. a lot of myths and legends. So they, some of their stories, for example, there's one that that's, that retells a quite anti-Semitic story about Jewish well poisoning that's a really, at this point, quite established anti-Semitic trope. Yeah. Well, it's it's part of the blood libel thing, isn't it? The well poisoning. It, yeah, yeah. It's all part of that same myth. So I think that the Brothers Grimm didn't only exclusively publish fairy tales. They they also kind of retold mm. or translated other legends and stories. It's kind of like, because they did that and like published mm. them together, it's all become part of the same cultural consciousness. Well, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that this is something that, is interesting when we think about Frankenstein because like you say there's lots of other sources of inspiration for Frankenstein and one of them is also the Prometheus myth yeah I mean it's that's literally what it's subtitled I wouldn't be surprised if Mary Shelley had read the Brothers Grimm stories because when you think about other of her texts like the mortal immortal Mm. and like in Valperga there's this really weird bit with the dwarf who's an alchemist yeah and there's a witch and that bit of that novel, I mean, maybe we'll dig into that one day because it's such a weird, the rest of the novel is very like, you know, it's a historical novel. There is a bit of a weird mm. thing with um, the second heroine whose name has gone out of my head. I feel like it's Be- Beatrice. Um, and then all of a sudden there's a dwarf and a witch. She definitely was aware of these like slowly popularizing gothic fairy tale folklore tropes that mm. become more Absolutely. tangible in the like they've always been there but they become more tangible as literary tropes in the 19th century I think I would I think I would buy it I think I buy that she would have read it I, I obviously couldn't put my reputation on it and say yeah of course she did I think I I think I like that theory I mean I do too and I think it's just it's one of these things where are we ever going to be able to prove that Mary Shelley read this 1808 publication from the Brothers Grimm Unless we literally find a letter where she's like, oh, wow, Claire, I read this sick story the other day. Yeah. And if anyone has that, then please let me know. That'd be fascinating. But I think that it's, whether she did or not, it's clearly, I think, in this this period, it it shows an interest in these kinds of stories at the very least. Yeah. Whether or not Um, she read it, it's bleeding into social consciousness. It is becoming part of the mm. mythos, part of this genre of storytelling yeah absolutely and and I think that from this moment as well the the narratives of Frankenstein and the golem have have become entwined Mm -hmm. so probably the best example of this is the silent horror film the golem and then James Whale's Frankenstein which which are both kind of early 20th century films um so I'm just going to talk about these these two a little bit. Um, I, you, I know you, you've you've seen James Wells's Frankenstein. I have. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. If, I don't think you've seen Der Golem. I don't think I've seen Der Golem. I've seen Stills in. I think I'm thinking one of your Probably. papers. <laughs> um, but yeah, I haven't seen Der Golem. Okay, so Der Golem, or the Golem, how he came into the world, is actually the third instalment of three films made by Paul Wegener about the golem um and i think it's uh around the oh, i forget I, I should have written down the dates of these films and I, they've <laughs> gone out of my head but around like the 1920s 
Um, I mean, I always do the same thing. I'm always like, <laughs> I obviously will never forget what date this was published. And then I'm like, mm, 1824. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically the, the two other films were made before the golem mm-hmm. um the golem is essentially a, a prequel it's how the golem came into the world Got you. it's the only one that actually survives to this day we don't have the other films in their entirety so Wegener kind of bases this the golem film on two main source texts one of which is rabbi judah low of prague mm-hmm. so you see how important that kind of mm-hmm. um legend is but he also ba- um, he also bases it on um, a 1915 novel by Jewish writer Gustav Mayrink which is also called Dagolum got you but I think this is really important to kind of highlight Wegener is not Jewish and this film is not made for Jewish people okay <laughs> um, and it, it basically transforms these stories okay. into a horror story where Jewish people and the golem figure are kind of Jewish monstrous others. Got you. So um, this is, I mean, God, we see this all the time with like voodoo and Ginny and yeah. Dibbuk boxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So the characters of the rabbi and also the rabbi's daughter, they're massively anti-Semitic. They're, they're caricatures. And there's this whole kind of like subplot where the rabbi's daughter falls in love with a Christian man. And this entire subplot is is played for laughs. And it's also like fetishizing her. Oh, gross. In, in a very kind of racially charged anti-Semitic way. So yeah, it's not great. Kabbalah is also reduced to occult magic. So you have all of these scenes that, you know, draw on a kind of aesthetic, general aesthetic of occult symbols and mysticism. Whereas, you know, as as I said earlier, like it's very much yeah. tied to Jewish practices and the idea that, you know, theologically Kabbalah isn't the occult. It's it's tied it's tied to um Jewish practices. And yeah, the violence enacted by the golem basically is a kind of symbol of of just Jewish violence. Sure. I mean, you know, it kind of tracks for the period and the geographical location. Well, yeah. And so these these films and all all of Wegener's films were made at a time where fascism was on the rise in Germany. So so Paul Wegener was, was a German filmmaker and these are German silent films. And at this time, Jewish communities were at particularly a kind of conduit for social anxieties and fears. Mm-hmm. And later in 1933, when the Nazi party had come to power, these companies were shut down and many actors and directors were arrested, persecuted or exiled. Not Wegener. Because, um, in fact, he went on to become an actor of the state and he also starred in several Nazi propaganda films. Hitler was like, he's my favourite director. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think this is a, a time where you have to be really careful with German silent films of this era. In Some of them do have Jewish people working on them or mm-hmm. people who are allies um and you know maybe are persecuted themselves you know not jewish but maybe gay and a lot of these people um either fled to hollywood yeah or were kind of captured and put into camps yeah there's a lot of exodus i mean it's you know you have a lot of tension when you're talking about mm. people like fritz lang and people who made art and mm. it was appropriated by the nazi party i think don't quote me on that but i think that it, that did happen with fritz lang um but a lot of german artists and directors would 
you know, make mm. things. And the Nazi party would be like, ah, yes, what a beautiful yeah. homage to the motherland. And they'd be like, no, that is not what I meant. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that Paul Wegener, though, was a Nazi. Not one of those people. No, he was, he was a Nazi. Yeah, he seemed pretty on board. <laughs> no, for the avoidance of doubt, Nazis are bad. Nazis have always been bad and Nazis are still bad. Um, but this film is really influential in both where the Golem myth goes, but also where Frankenstein goes. Mm-hmm. So you have in 1931, which is a little bit after the um, the De Golem film, you have James Wales's Frankenstein. Obviously, these are both films about man-made monsters, but there's several fil- like several scenes in these films that are really, really similar. So in De Golem, you have this bit where the Golem figure kind of walks out and meets a small child who then gives the golem a flower yeah you can probably picture the scene that i'm thinking of in in frankenstein it's the exact same scene yeah yeah where where the creature is kind of walking in the woods and meets a small child and then there's you know they they play with flowers and and then he dumps her in the lake but you know yeah (laughs) um (laughs) whatever Uh, (laughs) i have such mixed feelings about that frankenstein oh yeah but what i think is really interesting is that you have i i always i've always thought this of the james wayne film where that is a moment in the film where you do have this moment of humanity and and sympathy where Mm -hmm. they're really poignant because you have this exchange with a child and also the i mean the reason that he throws a child in the lake is because he thinks that's what they're doing. She's throwing stones in, so he's, you know... Just yeets her in the lake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Which actually, I think, was um, was removed. <laughs> that scene was removed from a lot of versions of that film because people thought it was too horrific. It's one of those moments <laughs> but... where you like, laugh and then you're like, oh my God! <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite horrific. But up until yeah. that moment where you have this kind of... Um, this moment of compassion between this really large creature and a child. And it's, I think it's interesting that that is also really, really massively inspired by, by the scene in Dergolum. And James Whale, you know, did say that he was really inspired by this film as well. So it's not conjecture. Yeah. There is, there are links between these films. You also have the importance of fire. So in, in both Dergolum and James Wales' Frankenstein, the idea that fire is used mm-hmm. possibly deactivate or destroy the the kind of monstrous figure fire is always this symbol of like man's Mm. strength and man's superiority and Mm -hmm. blah 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 blah. and there's obviously also the whole thing about fire being purifying and fires of hell and holy flame and you know i don't think it's unintentional that yes okay fire also would you know hinder a creature made of mud and clay there's also though a symbolism yeah Definitely. And and I don't think that it's an accident that you have these really clear visual parallels um, in, in these in these two stories. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of like how the, the myth of the golem has kind of been born out of religious kind of stories and the Bible and the Talmud and then has been kind of expanded through Kabbalah and then become a kind of legend and then has been adapted into into film but what about golems now so the final part of this kind of episode i just want to briefly mention you know what uh like what of golem kind of 
films and stories now. So more recently, the golem has actually been reclaimed by Jewish creators. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's really important to think about Paul Wegner's the Golem film as being really anti-Semitic and not made by Jewish people. <laughs> but we do have some examples yep. of Golem stories that have been told by Jewish people in the 21st century. So the Paz brothers, Doron and Yara Paz, they're Israeli yep. brothers and filmmakers. They directed a 2018 Israeli horror film called The Golem. But they've also described the Golem myth as being like a Jewish Frankenstein it's like blended into this weird, uns, you know, unseparate, wait, inseparable, in, inseparable, that's the word, inseparable strands. Yeah. They become entwined and you can't, uh, you can't disentangle them. Because I think, especially when we think about the Golem now, I think a lot of people do think about Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So whether or not Mary Shelley was inspired by these stories, the legacy of her novel is tied to the legacy of the Golem. Yeah. And... These stories, again, you know, we can think about how the myth has has moved and had a journey from, you know, Eastern Europe and Prague into Western Europe and and Germany and and England to some extent, but has also found its way through the the kind of Jewish diaspora um, and the the move back to Israel, into Israel. And the Paz brothers both say that it's kind of a a well-known story Mm -hmm. in Israel Mm -hmm. about Olam as a kind of protector, a Jewish superhero in, in that kind of way. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I also have to mention the Supernatural Golem episode. <laughs> <laughs> of course you yeah. do. So this episode is called Everybody Hates Hitler. And, you know, I think, <laughs> again... True, true. Nazis are bad. Hitler is bad. And this episode features a golem who kills Nazis. Nice. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, um, it's basically not just Nazis, but Nazi necromancers. What? So you have these kinds of <laughs> Nazi necromancers on the one hand and a golem on the other hand. And there's lots of flashbacks to the Holocaust where the golem kind of defends Jewish people in um, a concentration camp. But then you also have recent scenes of, because obviously Nazi nec- I think the whole point of Nazi necromancers is to kind of discuss the idea that unfortunately Nazis have not died. Yeah. There are still Nazis among us, you know, undead. Yeah. I laughed when you when you said Nazi necromancers, but let's be honest, if we think about not to get super academic, but the act of continuing to spout these things online, of dredging things back up, you only have to look mm-hmm. at QAnon to see how things like blood libel, you know, myths of hate from the 12th and 13th century have been reused, reborn, regenerated along with Nazi ideology. So it is a kind of cultural necromancy, not to be completely, not to be an absolute academic wanker, but it, <laughs> it is, it's a good it's a good analogy for something that, that really is happening. No, 100%. And, and I think it's a really good analogy for being like, look, these people who say they're Nazis, they're basically mm-hmm. just like undead weirdos who just refuse to die, but they're bad and we should... Punch them in the face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the cool guys do not condone violence unless it's Nazis. You can punch them in the face. <laughs> okay, so the writer... I, I mean, I really like this episode. I think it's. I think it's... Uh, one it's really funny two it's it's just really funny and really enjoyable but it's also really serious and I think that it is Mm -hmm. it it matches those kinds of things well 
The writer of the episode is someone called Ben Edland, and he's not Jewish, which I think is important to know. Yeah. But like overall, I've said this before, you know, if you know, if you've heard me talk about Supernatural, you know, I I often say this. (laughs) Supernatural as a show, I think people often view it as a Christian show. And I always want to push back on that because the the original creator and original show runner of the show Eric Kripke is Jewish mm-hmm. a lot of people in the writers room and you know the writers and directors of the show though not all of them are Jewish a lot of them are um yeah and it has the writers room itself has been described by people in the writers room as a kind of hotbed of Jewish communists so I think that uh, the Hollywood myth has come true yeah but you know I think I think that is important to note especially if you think about how tv episodes work mm-hmm. is often you you'll get in the writers room and people will will pitch ideas and, and discuss ideas so there will have been some input yeah within the show and this isn't a kind of you know this is not a christian show made by christian people that are appropriating stuff um but yeah I think it's just very, very funny. And there's lots of Jewish humour in it. So the golem, for example, he has an original rabbi who made the golem in the concentration camps and his grandson has now been bequeathed this golem. But his grandson is essentially more of a kind of secular Jew and he eats bacon. And (laughs) he also, his grandfather handed him down a, a special book probably the Sefer Yetzirah, but he, he he used some of the pages to smoke joints because the pages were perfect and thin, <laughs> perfect for a joint. So uh, there's lots of, and there's lots of en- enjoyable things um, about this. That's and very funny. Also, I just want to end by talking about the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror Golem segment. Mm-hmm. So this aired in 2006 and it's a segment that's titled, You've Got to Know When to Golem. And it's basically, Krusty the Clown has a kind of museum of artifacts. And one of them is the Golem. Who is the Golem made by the, you know, Rabbi Judalo of Prague? The Golem. The Golem. So yeah, that I think is just beautiful. And, <laughs> and it's also interesting because you have, I think this... Simpsons episode is really inspired by a lot of um, kind of Frankenstein sequels and specifically The Bride of Frankenstein because you know in The Bride of Frankenstein and and also in the novel you know the creature is like I want somebody to yeah I don't want to be the only one of my kind make me a mate yeah so in in the Simpsons episode they make a they make a female girl I'm sure that goes well But yeah, if you have any favourite Golem stories, then please let me know because I love Golem stories and I think they're really interesting. Um, And yeah, you can never have enough. No, you can't. And I do think, you know, it just goes to show like the fact that they pop up in a Treehouse of Horror episode. Like the reason Treehouse of Horror episodes work is because... I mean, a little bit less so now because obviously it's been great. Simpsons has been going on for such a long time. But the reason those episodes work is because everyone's familiar with those horror tropes. Yeah. Even if you haven't necessarily been or consumed. You know, I remember The Shining one. I was too young to have seen The Shining, but I understood the reference. I knew, like, what they were getting at. I understood, I understood enough of, like, that gothic reference to be able to find the humour in it. Yeah, exactly. The Treehouse of Horror episodes and segments are written by horror fans or fans of kind of yeah. horror and sci-fi. And 
the golem in the Simpsons episode is specifically created in a similar way to the golem, so Paul Wegener's golem, because that's the golem that most people are visually familiar with. And it's you put mm-hmm. them side by side and you can say, yes, these were directly you know, inspired by them. But again, this episode, I think, was written and directed by Jewish people and the voice of the golem is a Jewish person. So it is very much mm-hmm. not in the same kind of anti-Semitic appropriation vein (laughs) (laughs) love that (laughs) down with that so you know in terms of like modern golem so things like final fantasy uh dnd pokemon like a lot of modern video games draw on classic monsters so for example in dnd there's um, a lot of demons Mm. so there's incubi and succubi and all of these things, you know, rakshashas, I can never say that right, but there's all of these, you know, we know these, these exist in real life. And in D&D, you have obviously like gods and stuff. And then in Final Fantasy, they draw on things that are real in different cultures. Obviously, a lot of them are are Asian because Final Fantasy is made by a Japanese company. But, you know, in one of the games, you've got a like monster you could summon called mm. Quetzalcoatl. Yeah. And it was a Thunderbird inspired, obviously, yeah. by the Aztec god. So there's lots of things, you know, one of the summons mm. is Shiva, which that, again, like that's a Hindu goddess. These are all things that everybody's like familiar with. So it's interesting that the golem has also become something kind of on par with that. And that, and it makes me wonder, like, because I, growing up, definitely had absolutely no idea that that was a Jewish idea. It was literally a Jewish construct. You know, I was just like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, golems are creatures in, fa- in you know, fantasy media brought to life by x y and z and a lot of the things i've consumed where they're not just like a monster or something you can create as part of the game like in the dragon age series there's a very strong ethical Mm -hmm. story about creation so that aspect of it and i suspect companies like bioware they're a they're quite a diverse company they're very socially conscious they make a, a distinct effort to do that so they probably were aware of the origins and maybe drew on that a little bit more but it's interesting how much of that media is gothic because it's leaning into ideas of creation it's leaning into things like alchemy mm-hmm. and yeah. souls and the right to to have control over somebody you know i i would say dragon age is a very very gothic game and yeah it's just interesting how that translates even though sometimes the real origin is lost Absolutely. I think there's loads of examples of secular and non-Jewish golems in comics as well, mm-hmm. and also in, in video games. But I think what we're seeing now is like, I, I don't know, like a little move towards definitely in, in the mainstream or, or almost getting to the mainstream of being like, well, actually, this is where they've come from. And they are tied to Jewish traditions and history. Well, that's one beauty of the internet. Like, yes, the internet has also been responsible for spikes in anti-Semitism, but it's also been, it's made it easier for people to understand where these things come from and to then educate themselves, to be respectful or to seek alternatives. Like the traditional goblin Mm -hmm. became anti-Semitic. It wasn't originally anti-Semitic. It's something that appears in mythos across the world. So people have been making conscious efforts to go back further in their progress forwards be like oh well that was an anti-semitic trope so I'm going to take it backwards and I do think we've one thing that we have been able to do via the wonders of the global and world wide web is 
obviously challenge that although of course it also is a hive of scum and villainy for nazi necromancers <laughs> yeah again I can't, you just can't say this enough nazis and nazi necromancers are bad very bad no good <laughs> yeah not good not good not good <laughs> well thank you for that overview of the golem it was very interesting i learned a lot i did not know that there was a brother's grim story i did know the one about the well poisoning I didn't know about the Brothers Grimm story. So that was really interesting to learn. So thank you. And I hope you all enjoyed Mary's um, submission for the association for this uh, <laughs> this episode. And of course, if you would like to suggest content for a future episode, if there's something you'd like us to talk about, you can find us on our Instagram at The Ghoul Guides, on Twitter at The Ghoul Guides. You can email us at ghoulguides666 at gmail.com. And I believe you can also comment on obviously the YouTube but also on Spotify and Apple you can like us subscribe to us you can leave us a review you can tell us to shut the hell up we'll carry on but we we are powered by spite if nothing else so that's how you can get in touch with us and obviously in the meantime stay safe and stay spooky stay safe and stay spooky uh, bye 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 <laughs>